Good morning, Green Tree Community Church. My name is Tom Ricks, and I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree. It's good to see all of you this morning virtually uh, from wherever you are worshiping. We're glad uh, that we could be together again this morning. Uh, we've come to the, the teaching time in our service, the time where we seek to worship God with our minds, uh, with our intellect. And so let me invite you uh, to grab your Bible or whatever app you use to grab your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to be looking at verses 12 uh, through 20 as we continue in our series of the new reality. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we talked about uh, and visited with the Corinthians. So let me just remind you of a couple of things. The Corinthians loved the gospel. When Paul came to town and he preached the word of God, uh, they went crazy over it. They loved it. They ate it up with a spoon. Uh, but they were also a wildly independent bunch. Uh, as much as they loved the gospel, they were fiercely independent and they were young in their faith. And so it took them a while to grow up into that faith. So uh, picture uh, your children or maybe picture when you were a child and you had a, a couple of children that were arguing, or maybe you had a, a sibling that was trying to tell you what to do. And this is my buddy. I bring him out about every eight or 10 uh, sermons. Uh, there he is again. And he's saying, you're not the boss of me. Uh, that was the Corinthians. The Corinthians were, were really independent. They, they loved Jesus. Again, they, they were thrilled to become his disciples, uh, and yet they, uh, they had a lot to learn and a lot, to, a lot of growing to do. And I, what I love about them is that they're quite a bit like us. The Corinthians probably looked a little bit more like the culture of Corinth than they actually did uh, followers of Jesus. And I think that's, that's true of the Western church in the 21st century. Uh, what I mean by that is I think we tend to look more like our culture than we do like the definition of disciples in the New Testament. For example, we probably get more of our, our decision-making information about how we handle our money from the Wall Street Journal than we actually do by going to our Bible and seeing what it has to say about uh, earthly treasures. Uh, perhaps we, uh, we tend to think more uh, about ourselves compared to what people say of us on social media than we do looking at the scriptures uh, and understanding that we're a new creation in, in Jesus. Uh, I, I believe firmly <laughs> that we are more ensconced in the American dream uh, than we are Jesus' words, whoever would be my disciple, take up his cross and follow me. I don't say that to, to beat us up or to be mean-spirited. I think that's just simply the reality of the challenges in which we live. And what's interesting is that that were the same challenges that faced the Corinthians. They may not have had an American dream, but trust me, they had a Corinthian dream that looked an awful lot like ours. They struggled just as we do with the old reality. They were enslaved to themselves, to a self-centered desire, to seeking out uh, whatever indulgences and passions uh, that they wanted. Uh, and they needed to embrace the new reality. They needed to be reminded and to grow in the notion that we have been set free in Christ Jesus, that we live as one with God. And that's not simple. Uh, that's a difficult transformation. Now, thankfully, uh, we're going to see throughout Corinthians that, that God has given the Holy Spirit to empower us on that. But this is a, this is a completely 
new way of thinking. It's 180 degrees from what our culture would tell us is right and good. And so one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to engage? Are we willing to engage in that process where uh, we shed the old and we take on the new? I remember when our oldest son, Nathan, went to officer candidate school for the Marine Corps. And at the end of the summer, we got to, we got to go and see the graduation. And he, he talked about all the mind games that the drill sergeants played with them all summer long. Oh, it wasn't a game, but they, they, they were trying to get them to think in a radically different way. And it took some real hard work uh, to go in a completely different direction. That's where the Corinthians find themselves. And I would guess that with the pressures that you and I face in the 21st century of the church in America, that's where we find ourselves as well. So we're in good company. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20 here the Word of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Uh, let's spend a moment in prayer asking God to teach us this morning, to give us uh, ears and hearts and minds that are willing to listen and to learn. And so we'll have a, uh, just a moment of silent prayer for you to pray that for yourself, and then I will lead us in a corporate prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that you don't leave us as you found us. When you found us, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. When you found us, we were lost and we didn't even know so. When you found us, we had no hope. And now we are the ones who are filled with hope, not because we have earned your love or your mercy, but because you have freely given it to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, you don't just save us from sin, uh, you also redeem our minds and our thinking and our emotions and our passions, and you create a new self within us through your word and through your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would teach us to live in that new reality. We thank you for this letter to the Corinthians uh, because it, it gives us hope. Uh, we can see ourselves in these pages, the, the mistakes that they were making, uh, the sins that they were committing because they were... They were just growing in their faith and just coming to understand what it meant to be disciples of Jesus. They look an awful lot 
uh, like us. They remind us of ourselves, perhaps. And so we pray this morning that we would sit uh, with the Corinthians as you teach us, uh, that you would help us to be protected against our own defensiveness, our own sense of not wanting to be wrong. Uh, but Lord, rather you would take us to a place where we want to be corrected by your word. We want to be challenged by your word. We want to be fed by your word. Oh Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit and your word would do its work in our hearts. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of your gospel this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sermon in a sentence this morning, and if you're new to Green Tree, I, I do this at the outset of, of uh, my sermons, kind of give you an idea of where we're going for the morning. It also helps me stay uh, on track and be somewhat mindful of the time uh, that I'm taking to share the message. But our sermon in a sentence this morning is that uh, we as Jesus' disciples must develop a biblical ethic if we hope to be spirit a spiritually and emotionally mature community. Uh, hopefully you notice some things about that, uh, that we're developing, which means we're growing. It means that it isn't ours instantly, that there's some investment on our part, there's some work on our part, and that God is also doing a work within us, and that it's a journey. Uh, we're moving towards a deeper spirituality and a more healthy spirituality. We're, we're moving uh, in a way that we're growing emotionally more secure in Christ, and we're doing that together. Uh, as a community of believers. This isn't uh, just a sermon for one of us this morning. It's a sermon, uh, it's a word for all of us. And primarily what we're talking about today, what Paul's talking about is how we think, how we reason, how we approach the life we're living when it comes to our morals, when it comes to our ethics. Now, Paul is not suggesting that we take these ethics out into the world as our primary message to the world. A lot of people would say, you know, you Christians are pretty narrow-minded about human sexuality. Uh, and, and in the world's standards, uh, in the correct context, I understand that point, and, and in many ways I agree with that point. But we are not put on earth to teach the world sexual morals. We're not put on earth to, to try to get everybody to obey a bunch of rules that we can't and don't obey ourselves. The Church of Jesus Christ has been put in this world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. And once that gospel is shared, and once it begins to take root in a person's life, whether it's a person in first century Corinth or a person in 21st century St. Louis, Missouri, then that gospel begins to produce fruit. And some of the fruit it produces is that we begin to think a different way. We begin to live in this new reality. So things that didn't make any sense to us and, and seemed awful as unbelievers, now we begin to see that as God's life-giving word. So we're talking about how do disciples of Jesus think about the moral uh, circumstances in which they find themselves. We're going to look at this three different ways. Uh, we're going to begin by asking, how do we question the old assumptions? Secondly, we're going to ask the question, how do we embrace uh, the new value that we have in Christ? And thirdly, we want to recognize the gift given and the price that was paid. So first of all, uh, if we're going to learn to think in the new reality, we need to begin to question these old assumptions. And we find these in verses 12 and 13. And Paul is actually here quoting what the Corinthians have said to him. Uh, this is kind of a, 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 a nice saying within their day that they like to use to kind of sum up who they were. All things are lawful for me. Uh, another way we might say that is, is all things are permissible. I can do 
whatever I want. You're not the boss of me. And so Paul begins by quoting that statement of theirs. So they would, Paul would be teaching, they'd say, but all things are lawful for me. And Paul interjects now God's word and he says, yes, but not everything is helpful. <laughs> so you may feel you have the right to do whatever you want. And, and, and in the human sense, that may be very true as you live here in Corinth, which is free from a lot of restrictions. But in God's economy as disciples of Jesus, you need to understand that things can be actually spiritually harmful. Not everything is beneficial. Beneficial for what? Beneficial for following Jesus. Beneficial for being a witness to him in this world. Beneficial to live amongst the community of believers in a way that encourages and builds other people up. So Paul says, you know, you guys say everything is lawful, but I want to ask a question. Is everything really helpful for you? And if they stopped to think about it, they would probably say, well, no, there are probably some things that are pretty harmful to us. And then he repeats that same phrase over again in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, you say, so to speak. But then Paul says, but I will not be enslaved by anything. The theologian Barclay put it this way, all things are allowed me, but I will not allow anything to get control of me. What are the sin patterns in your life that have control over you? You don't have to speak them out loud, but they're there. Uh, we, we'd like to say that we're fiercely independent and that nothing has control over us. We're free uh, citizens of the United States of America. We have liberty. Uh, we have First Amendment rights and all that sort of thing. But if we look carefully at our sinful nature, we would probably find that some of that old reality, some of that old way of thinking, some of those old sins that enticed us to go down that journey of a death spiral actually can still control the way we think or live. So Paul says, be careful when you say everything is lawful for me or okay for me because you might end up being enslaved by that very thing. And then he uses a third phrase that they use uh, that he wants them to question this old assumption. And there's another kind of common phrase in their, in their uh, uh, day and setting in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, whatever I want is, is okay. If I want a hot dog, that's fine. If I want a bowl of ice cream, that's fine. If I want to eat a bunch of broccoli, it doesn't matter. The, you know, food for the stomach, stomach for the food. In other words, leave me alone. Kind of let me do my own thing. And Paul says, be careful there because the Lord is going to destroy them both. In other words, you're going to die someday. Uh, and the food that you're eating today will be of no value to your stomach, uh, nor will your stomach be any value to that food that you're consuming. John Stott put it this way. If I am constantly concerned about my rights, like the Christians in Corinth, how can I be genuinely free to respond to what my Lord wants me to do? Good question. Therefore, I come back to this first point. What Paul is doing here is he's, he, he's not telling the Corinthians they're wrong and they need to do it differently. He's simply getting them to question the assumptions by which they're living and think them through to the end. And what they will find out is that those assumptions, that old reality, actually made them a slave to their old self-centeredness, to their own self-indulgence, to their own physical passions. In other words, that, that those old assumptions were actually hurting them, causing them great spiritual harm. So if we're going to develop a biblical ethic, 
we need to know what to put aside. And so you could sum that up. I say we're going to put aside those assumptions that I am most important, that my thy self-centeredness is actually the wrong way to live. Uh, we're going to set aside the notion that, that me being self-centered is good and healthy and right. Well, if we're going to set that aside, what are we going to pick up? What's going to replace that? And as we come to the second observation in this text, we're going to embrace a new value. Paul says here uh, in the second half of verse 13 and of verse 15 and verse 17 that individually each of us belong to Christ and he belongs to us. The body is not meant for sexual normality. What's the body meant for? It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Paul asks in verse 15 and verse 17. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul is using marriage language here. So you see that little, little picture of the, the groom placing the ring on the bride's finger. And, and, and that ring is a visual reminder of promises made and promises that are to be kept. Uh, we say that we are physically, emotionally, and spiritually becoming one with our spouse. If you're married today, and Cindy and I have our anniversary next month in early November, uh, we will be married, let's see, it's going to be, this is 2020, uh, we'll be married 39 years in November, which is hard to believe, but true nonetheless, which is crazy because Cindy's only 39 years old, so I don't know how that happened. But uh, if we're going to grow as a couple from way back in November 7th, 1981, we hoped that day, and we thought we were terribly in love, and we could probably never be any more in love that day than we were at that moment. But what we've come to find out was that that hope, as you, as you move into the reality of marriage, that intimacy, that spiritual oneness, that emotional oneness, that physical oneness actually grows. And what's presumed here by Paul when he says uh, the body is for the Lord, you're, you're members of Christ, uh, whoever is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What Paul is assuming here is marital faithfulness, that we're going to be true to the one who called us. Paul's going to going to talk in terms throughout the New Testament of the church, that's you and me collectively, being the bride of Jesus. And so it's assumed that the bride will be faithful to the husband. And he points this out in verse 15 and verse 16, uh, where he asks a, a, a couple of questions. You go to that next slide if you would. There you go. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I guess I forgot to put those in. Let me, let me read those for you real quick. In 15, uh, the second half of 15, Paul asks a question. Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He says, never. And then verse 17 says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sinned against his own body. So the, the notion here, right? Am I, am, am I going to leave my spouse and be joined to someone unfaithfully? Of course not. In other words, the Christian and the Christian community known as the church is called to be faithful to Christ. And that the assumption is that we understand and that we're growing in our love for Him, our affections for Him, 
our commitment to him from the first day we meet him until the day we see him face to face. Keeping with his notion of marriage, how many Christian marriages do you think would survive ongoing infidelity? Think about this for just a moment. If there's a marriage and the husband or the wife are being unfaithful and it's all the time and it's not hidden and the assumption of the spouse is, you're just going to have to accept me the way I am. You're just going to have to be okay with me and you know doing things with other people that should only be contained in a marriage. That marriage is not going to last. It's not going to survive, nor should it. That kind of unfaithfulness is untenable in a marriage relationship. And Paul is saying that's what we need to begin to understand as young Christians and where we need to grow as believers, that our faithfulness to Christ is important in our relationship with Him. The opposite of unfaithfulness is a genuine growing love and trust and intimacy. And that's who we are in Christ. And so we need to not only understand that and accept it, but we need to grow in it as well. So as I look at the world, as I look at the choices I make, as I look at the decisions I make, whether they're sexual decisions or or monetary decisions or relational decisions, I begin to look at them through the lens of the new reality is that I belong to Jesus, that he's the one who's redeemed me. He's the one who saved me. I find my identity, the, 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 the marriage language, the two have become one. I now find my identity in Christ, and Christ identifies himself with me. We're embracing a new value. There's one other new value that we need to embrace, uh, and that's found in verse 14, and that this relationship is not a temporal relationship. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, And God raised the Lord, uh, God raised Jesus, that's the Paul's calling Jesus the Lord there, and will also what? Raise us up by his power. Now, in a few weeks when we get to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to do a long discourse on the resurrection and on the everlasting aspect of our relationship with God. It's not just for this world, but it's for all of eternity going forward. That's who I am. I'm I'm not just a temporal person on this earth. And in a few years when it's all over, I'm 61. I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning. When it's all over in 20 or 30 or some odd years, uh, that's it. I'm done. No, (laughs) my existence with Christ is just beginning. And so we want to live in that reality right here, right now in this earth. As we think about something like the election coming up, and we're so concerned about whether our congressperson or our presidential candidate or our local whoever's running that we're just kind of putting all our eggs in that basket. We so want them to get elected. Why? Because they're going to change our world and make a difference for all of eternity? Absolutely not. I'm not saying don't vote. Voting is important. Uh, We need to be faithful citizens. But in comparison, I'm created for an eternal relationship with God and That's part of where I find my value of being in Christ. That's the new reality in which you and I live as disciples of Jesus. So we therefore then recognize this gift that God has given and the price that he's paid. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says this, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The Holy Spirit, in a sense, is a down payment for our eternal relationship with God. The Holy Spirit 
Uh, let's stick with the marriage language. The Holy Spirit is a wedding gift displaying love for and commitment to the bride. I didn't know until somebody told me a few weeks before I got married that I was supposed to provide a marriage gift for Cindy. I was just kind of young and foolish and didn't, didn't know my way around. And so I pretty quickly scampered and, and worked hard to make some extra money so I could get her some kind of nice gift uh, to say, you're mine. You belong to me. I love you. I want to be with you. What God is saying by giving us the Holy Spirit and breathing that life into us through the Holy Spirit is you belong to me. You're mine. You're mine now and you're mine forever. And this gift of the Spirit displays my commitment to you. So we recognize the grace given, but we also recognize that it wasn't Tom scampering around trying to make a few extra bucks to give a nice gift. This is actually a gift that the expense of which cannot be measured. Verse 20, don't you know that you are bought with a price? So glorify God in your body. What price was that? Well, let's go to a very famous verse out of John's gospel. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, you might know this verse pretty well. For God so loved the world, that means you and me, that he gave what? He gave a token gift? No, he gave his one and only son. He gave that son on the cross who died, bled and died, and took on the wrath of God that I deserve and that you deserve. Why? So that whoever believes him would not perish, but have eternal life. The price that was paid for your salvation and mine was not inexpensive. Uh, I remember when our kids got out of college and we actually kind of got a raise without earning more money. We just weren't paying tuition and room and board. And Cindy had always wanted a, a pickup truck. And it was about four years ago, but yeah, four years ago this month uh, that I, I was able to uh, be able to afford that. And I surprised her one day. I took her car. Uh, she works at the high school and I took her car and uh, took it over to the dealership. I told her I had to get the oil change, kind of fib to make this, this surprise work. Uh, and when she came out, she was walking to her parking space where her little Volkswagen Jetta was supposed to be, but that wasn't there. There was a red Ford F-150 pickup truck, the exact color red that she had always wanted. And with the, with the, the same cab and doors and engine and all the stuff she wanted exactly. And she sat there and said, who's parked this truck and where's my car? And, and why is this truck here? And it, this looks like the exact kind of truck that I've always wanted. And she's totally confused. And then she sees the card on the windshield. She opens the card and she said, it was a real, it was like my best moment ever, right? I, I can't do any better than this. And she starts screaming and dancing. I hop out of the car and walk over and start talking to her. And she's just elated. That was an amazing gift. She was so excited and it wasn't inexpensive. That's like a horrendous, horrendous example trying to talk about the expense of the Son of God for us. What God paid for your salvation, what God paid for my salvation is incalculable. It's the gift of His very own Son. And so if we're going to develop a biblical ethic, if we're going to be committed to not only believing in Jesus, but living as His followers, making cognitive decisions based on our relationship with Him, we, we must not only question the old assumptions and embrace our new value, but we must recognize this gift every day. And we must acknowledge every day the price that has been paid for our salvation so that therefore we can begin to apply this to our lives. And that's where we're going to 
finish up this morning, let's talk about the therefore. Uh, what do we do with this passage of Scripture today? Well, first and foremost, let me say we, we, we train through uh, the, the, the Word of God, through Christian friendships. Uh, we train ourselves to reject slavery of living only for ourselves and only for temporal self-gratification. So we're reminded the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Shall I take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one in body with her, for it is written the two will become one flesh. That's not just going to happen overnight. If I have an issue with lust, and I do, most, most people do at one time or another, that's not just going to disappear. It's not just going to vanish. I actually need to begin to apply God's word. I need to have Christian friends around me to encourage me that I can be honest with. We can share with one another freely so that I can be trained and I can maybe be part of their training in order for us to reject this notion that the temporal can save, that the temporal can fix, that the temporal ultimately is the answer. I jotted down this thought this week because I, I, I thought about how quickly our culture goes to sex is the answer to the question. I don't want to be crass here, and I don't, I don't want to be inappropriate, but we mistake uh, the physical aspect for love and the gratification that comes from that relationship as kind of the ultimate uh, for our lives. But that's nonsensical because it, it doesn't cure anything. It only gives us a desire for more, and it only ultimately hurts us at the end of the day. I said using sex to ease our spiritual pain and emotional emptiness is like treating ulcers with bourbon and chocolate-covered strawberries. It's like the worst thing you can do. So that desire just isn't going to stop. It's not just going to disappear. We need to train ourselves. We need to cooperate with the Spirit of God and the Word of God and, and use the Christian friends around us to intentionally question the old assumptions, reject the old reality. It doesn't just stop with the, with the negative. It also moves to the positive. We, secondly, we need to understand the relationship that we have with Jesus. Paul uses the term in this passage four times. He calls Jesus Lord. 1 Corinthians uses the word Lord more than any other book in the New Testament. Paul's trying to make a point here, and he knows the weakness in the Corinthian Christian is understanding the Lordship of Christ. It's understanding that, that we belong to Jesus and that our life needs to change and conform to His image that we need to set the old reality aside and we need to live in the new reality. And as our Savior, He is also our Lord, which means He has the right to, to call us to that life. That He is not our advisor. He's not our friend. He's not our pal. He is the one to whom we bow our heads and our hearts and, our, and literally our physical bodies. We bend the knee to Jesus. Jesus isn't just your Savior. He's not just the one who's redeemed me. He is my Lord. I owe him all of my allegiance. And so I need to understand that just like the Corinthians needed to understand. Most of the Corinthians, like I said, they're wild about Jesus as Savior. They had a lot of growing to do with Jesus as Lord. And I think we're in that exact same boat. So we need to, we need to remind ourselves of that relationship. Thirdly, and I got four. Thirdly, we need to learn to run away. And some of you might be thinking of the old Monty Python movie in Holy Grail where they, they were always running away. But that's not a, that's not a bad thing to, to consider. Flee sexual immorality. Oh my gosh, it's all around us. 
you know, it's on your laptop, it's on your phone, it's on billboards as you're driving down the road, it's at the movie theater, it's on your TV, it's in, you know, nobody uses a radio anymore. It's, 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 it's on, you know, any app you want uh, that has sexual immorality in it. It's at our fingertips. How do you run away from something that's all around you? You have to replace. You have to put something else in there. And in order to do that, you have to be honest with your brothers and sisters about your struggle. Isolation, when it comes to sexual temptation, will kill you. It'll wipe you out. If you can't confess that sin to at least one person, if you can't share with them the issues that you have when it comes to the human sexual expression, then call me. I'll be your friend. Talk to me. You've got to have somebody in your life you can say, this is the reality of my situation. I need your prayers. I need your support. I need you to remind me of the new reality. I need you to remind me to run away, to, to put the guardrails in my life that will move me in a different direction. And the fourth, therefore, is not only do we need to learn to run away, but we need to learn to run toward. As I said, this is not just emptying. It's also filling. Where are we running, right? We're running toward the Lord. The Lord is there for us. Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? We flee to the cross of Christ for you're bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You need to learn to run to Jesus, which brings me back to my sermon in a sentence. Developing a biblical ethic. That's what is called for, that we need to learn to live as followers of Jesus. So we hope to be a spiritually and emotionally mature community. I, 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 I rarely actually close my sermons with a story, but I'm actually going to close with a story today because I think it makes the point. I have a, a dear friend and a mentor, I won't mention his name right now, um, but who's several years ahead of me in ministry and a whole lot smarter than I am and, and a whole lot more accomplished than I am, but he, he's been kind enough over his life to engage with me. Uh, and he told a story about early in his ministry when he had gotten out of seminary, he'd only been out for a few years, and he was pastoring in a small town. He was pastoring a, a predominant church in a, in a small town. A lot of folks uh, who were, you know, in the upper crust of the business community attended that church. And the main business in that town was a publishing company. And it pretty much employed everybody. The reason there was a, a Walmart in that town was because it supported the people who worked for the publishing for the publishing plant, the plant that actually produced a wide variety of publications, magazines and newspapers and all different kinds of things. And there came a moment when the publishing company got a huge contract from uh, an, an adult uh, publishing uh, publisher, wanted them to put their uh, material out. Uh, obviously, completely inappropriate, but this is where the dollar came in. This is where the moment of choice had to be made because it was a huge contract and it would guarantee jobs for years to come. And many of the executives of that company were sitting in my friend's church Sunday in and Sunday out, and he had to make a decision. He had to make a decision about a biblical ethic. Where am I going to stand on this topic? And so he stood in that pulpit and he preached against deciding to take on that publication. And it was hard and it was, it was difficult. It was nearly impossible for him, but he stood his ground and God saw him faithfully through that experience and has continued to use him up to this very day. If I told him, I'm not going to tell you his name, but if I told you his name, you would know him. Uh, he's very well known. But he had a moment where he had to make a choice if Jesus was going to exercise that lordship in his life. Don't think pastors are tempted to give in to things just like everybody else's. We, we are. But at that moment, 
by God's grace, he was able to embrace that new reality. And in doing so, he he didn't wag his finger at folks, but he invited them to follow Jesus, to develop that biblical ethic so that that body of believers could be spiritually healthy and mature in Christ. That's what we so desire at Green Tree. That's what we long for for ourselves individually and for us as a community, that, that this relationship with Jesus would seek deeply into our hearts and our minds, that this new reality would actually be the reality into which we grow and live in order to glorify God, serve Him, and serve one another. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are challenged by this passage. We're, we, I'll speak for myself. I see myself right in the middle of the Corinthians. Uh, loving the gospel, so thankful that Jesus would come and would die and would offer himself, but also wrestling with following him, moving into the new reality and the way I think, the way I speak, the way I act. And Lord, I know that my brothers and sisters of Green Tree have that same exact struggle. And I also know, Lord, that their heart longs for a biblical ethic as a foundation for our lives for a spiritual and emotional maturity that comes only from uh, knowing you as our Lord and following you and having your Holy Spirit and your word transform us. And so we pray for that new reality to take hold, for us to follow you into it, trusting you, knowing that you who begin this good work will see it through all the way until the day we see you face to face. We praise you and thank you for your love for us. We pray in your name. Amen.